we like our metaphors in social protection. We talk about safety nets, even ropes and ladders, to catch people as they fall into poverty and help them to climb out of it. But in this episode, we're talking about social protection flaws. Social protection flaws describe a vision for comprehensive national social protection systems that provide basic health and income support guarantees to all citizens. The crises created by COVID-19 have, of course, shone a light on gaps in social protections in many countries. But building comprehensive systems takes time and investment. Despite international agreements, coverage is still increasing slowly. Between 2017 and 2021, the proportion of the global population covered by at least one social protection benefit increased by just 2%, and over half the world's population remain completely unprotected. We're speaking with three guests for this episode. Valerie Schmidt is Deputy Director of the Social Protection Department at the International Labour Organization, leading ILO's flagship program on building social protection floors for all. Richard Rory is a Social Protection Policy and Research Analyst at the National Social Security Fund in Kenya and part of the team at the State Department's National Social Protection Secretariat. Kun Detavernier is a Social Protection Advocacy Officer at We Social Movements and an advisor for the International Network for Social Protection Rights, which connects over 100 civil society organisations across four continents. Welcome, Valerie, Richard and Kun. Hello. Hello. Pleased to meet you. Hello. Welcome. It's nice to see you without masks. <laughs> Thank you. Valerie, can I start with you? Could you start us off by briefly defining the concept of social protection flaws and how they're enshrined in international agreements? Um, yes, I think uh, I would like to start with a little bit of history. It's recent history. So at the beginning of this century, despite strong economic growth for uh, more than 50 years, it became clear that the, the social dimension of globalization had been neglected. And social protection really remained uh, a privilege uh, of the few. And when the 2009 uh, financial crisis hit, countries that had already uh, established social protection systems were in a better position to overcome the crisis and achieve recovery more rapidly. And so this, this really provided evidence that social protection is not only useful to protect people when they face a life cycle risk, but could also play the role of an automatic economic stabilizer. So which gave a lot of justification uh, for the work that then we, <laughs> that the ILO and others uh, started at that moment. And so it's really against this background that the concept of the social protection floor was, uh, was developed. And uh, this idea was also recognized by the UN uh, through the Social Protection for Initiative in 2009 as uh, as a yeah efficient way to to really support countries and accelerate recovery from the crisis, and so it's three years later in 2012 that the social protection floors concept was for the first time defined in an international law called the social protection floors recommendation. So this definition is extremely important because it's a common definition. Uh, to all ILO member states represented by their governments, uh, workers' organizations, employers' organizations, and the civil society was very active as well during this adoption. 
And so according to the recommendation on social protection floors, of course, they are nationally defined, but they should at least uh, provide four guarantees. One is access to essential health care for all, including maternity care. Another one is income security for children so that they can access nutrition, education, and care. The third one is income security for the working age population so that they can receive income security in cases of sickness, unemployment, maternity, disability. And the last one is income security for older persons. So what is also important, I just want to add that, is that social protection floors are universal. They are for all. They are comprehensive. It means that they provide protection across the life cycle. And they should be adequate, meaning allowing a life in dignity. And the last point is that social protection floors are not ceiling. So it's floors, it's not ceiling. It means that countries, of course, they start by developing the floor where they, where they can. But progressively, they should develop more comprehensive social protection system to provide higher levels of benefits, better protection for all. So this is more or less the definition. Kun turning to you through your networks of civil society actors, which include trade unions, cooperatives, and other groups in many countries. Do you see growing support for this idea of comprehensive social protection systems, or is this a goal that's still really quite a long way from being achieved? I would say both. As for the vision, it's it's quite clear that the members of our network are firmly convinced that, that the objective is and should be comprehensive social protection for all. There's no doubt about that. Of course, there is still a very long way to go in many countries. So depending on the context, if I may, I could give a few examples. For example, in Senegal, Inspire Senegal is strongly focusing on health insurance as a first priority. And the network is made up of, as you said, trade unions, but also social health mutuals. And they are strongly involved in this. They started providing solidarity-based health insurance even long before the Senegalese government was thinking about doing this, especially uh, with a focus on informal economy. And with a fair bit of success, I may say that they managed to cover about 20% of the population, almost all of these people in working in the informal economy. Of course, this, is, this wouldn't be possible if, if certain key factors in national policy wouldn't be set in place. And this was also, of course, part of their advocacies. There is a strong legal framework being set up by the government. There is political will and political support for the anticipation and joining the forces between government agencies uh, and the social health insurance, uh, health mutuals, um, associations. There is financial support too, because not everybody has the same capacity to contribute financially. So that the mechanisms are basically contributory. But without subsidies and co-financing from the government, it wouldn't be possible. So because they're doing this together, it, they managed to cover, as I said, 20% uh, through this mechanism. In total, about 40 to 50% of the population in Senegal is covered by health insurance and is growing. Uh, another example, also with a, with a key role of, of civil society actors, could be Indonesia. Since 2002, the, the constitution of Indonesia stipulated that there should be a social security system to cover the entire population. But even in 2011, still only 12 million people were actually covered in Indonesia after nine years. And then the trade unions, but in a broad alliance with other civil society, started massive mobilizations. They took to the streets, voiced the, the demand that the government should 
implement this principle in the Constitution. And as a result, in 2014, two specific, let's say, administrations for social protection were set up in Indonesia, uh, one for health coverage and one for what they call labor-related contingencies. Uh, now, especially for the health, the, the, the progress in these seven, eight years that this has been functioning is quite impressive. By 2020, coverage reached 220 million people. There again, thanks to uh, participation, social dialogue, strong involvement of the trade unions and employers' organizations, and, and a lot of political support to get this done. This is the good news. Unfortunately, in other countries, progress has been far less. For example, in Burundi, I think about 10 years ago, uh, our, our health mutual partners were on a similar track as in Senegal. But because of political problems, there's, there's been a total setback and almost nothing improved since seven, eight years. In a country like Bangladesh, we, we have many partners in, in the garment industry. There too, there is very little coverage for garment workers. Even this is largely uh, a formal sector, but there seems to be very little political will to truly establish uh, social security systems for, for the workers in the garment industry. So there's a lot of challenges ahead, I would say, um, but also progress. And, and we see most progress where, where civil society, trade unions and governments work together in, in the same direction. Richard, coming to you, how has Kenya expanded its social protection system over recent years? Kenya's social protection really adopts a life cycle approach as its guiding principle and puts forward a nationally defined minimum for the four basic social protection guarantees that Valera has just spoken about, uh, particularly basic income security for children, basic income security for persons in active uh, age, uh, basic income security for all persons, and of course, access to essential health care, including maternity care. Kenya's social protection system seeks to guarantee income protection to persons who are vulnerable to climate-related shocks or natural and man-induced disasters. You'll note that in the past 10 years, Kenya's social protection has seen a transformation of the social assistance uh, programs. And this is because in 2011, Kenya developed our first social protection policy that guided on our social protection programs, plans, and activities uh, were to be carried out. When you look at Kenya's social protection program and it has grown, one thing that comes to mind is the National Safety Net Program, which was developed as a means of operationalizing government priorities for strengthening, scaling up, it is social protection provision. Now, the program comprised of the government of Kenya's four major cash transfers that I've talked about. Now, under the National Safety Net Program, coverage of these four programs has increased from approximately 3,000 and 2,000 households in 2013 to now 1.3 million households. And if you look at it, you can say nearly 4 million individuals as at 2020. Now, this significant progress was also made with regard to the establishing of some core systems for delivering social assistance, such as the enhancement of the program through the MIS. Overall, I want to say that Kenya has recorded 
significant achievement in the social protection sector with the government of Kenya financial commitment to social assistance standing at 0.4% of gross domestic product. Valerie, on this question of progress, social protection flaws and social protection coverage form part of SDG Target 1.3, which is to implement nationally appropriate social protection systems and measures, all including flaws, and by 2030 achieve substantial coverage of the poor and vulnerable. The ILO is responsible for monitoring progress towards this target. How is progress looking and how are you feeling about achievement of that particular target? by 2030? Yeah, thanks a lot for the question. Indeed, the the ILO uh, is custodian for the SDG 131. uh, And therefore, we have built in the past few years uh, a World Social Protection Database that, that is online, that is, of course, accessible to everyone. So you can follow the progress in terms of expansion of social protection country by country, So it's quite amazing to have access to this information. And uh, we are using also this dashboard, for instance, in our country pages. We have country pages for over 60 countries uh, that are accessible also on uh, our website. And so to answer your question, if we look back, the first time that we we prepared this this SDG 131 indicator, uh, so it was in 2017. At that time, we were at... um, 45% of the world's population covered by at least one social protection benefit, which meant in 2017 that 55% of the world's population had no access at all to social protection. And in September this year, we have published uh, again the World Social Protection Report, so uh, three and a half years uh, later, compared to the previous estimate. And now we are at uh, 46.9, so almost 47% of the world's population covered by at least one social protection benefit, which means that 53% of the world's population has no access at all to any social protection benefit. So we see in three years progress of 2%, (laughs) basically. Uh, Let's uh, discuss again in three years to see where we are. So it is clear that today, despite the progress in terms of the development of different branches of social security, different legal frameworks, we still estimate that uh, more than half of the world's population, so this means that 4 billion people live in constant uh, uncertainty. And uh, in in the meantime, of course, we will not uh, stay inactive. And uh, as Kuhn mentioned, we are really working together through especially the flagship program, but through also our country offices, et cetera, to support countries in building their social protection force. It's impossible to discuss this topic without talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how that it really exposed the missing middle of informal workers not covered by social protection. This group hardly needs any introduction, but broadly we're talking about working age people and their families not covered by regular social assistance schemes, which might normally be reaching the poorest or particularly vulnerable groups like young children and elderly people. But in this case, who, due to their informal work status, are also not contributing to social insurance schemes that might have provided unemployment or other benefits when people lost work due to COVID-19. And as you were saying earlier, Valerie, this has really exposed the 
the big gap in so many social protection systems, even some of the ones that are a little bit more advanced. Kun, can you give us a sense of how workers and especially informal workers are faring now after almost two years of COVID-related disruption in many places? Well, they're not faring well. <laughs> Based on, I think it's numbers of the ILO, even the informal economy lost about 60 to 80 percent of their earnings during the pandemics, especially during lockdowns, when many economic activities were simply not possible, were prohibited, domestic work, local markets, driving people around. So, so many, many people lost their income. And, and as you said in your introduction, people in the informal economy are by and large not covered by, for example, medical insurance, so have a hard time uh, when they get sick to pay for healthcare. But of course, social security and contributory mechanisms have also proven, because they were not covering big uh, proportions of the populations in many countries, uh, non-contributory mechanisms are also needed in the form of social assistance. Uh, And so in in many countries where where our partners are active uh, in the Inspire Network, the focus was on social assistance, to get the assistance to the people who were needing it, mainly people in the informal economy. To, To give the example of India, our network demanded actually a 20,000 Indian rupee allowance per month, which is about 240 euros for, for workers in the informal economy who were losing their income because of the lockdown. This was quite an ambitious demand, but at least some response came mainly from the, the state governments in India, even though it was, it was quite fragmented and many people fell through the cracks, actually. They, it didn't reach everyone that, that was in need. For example, the very big group of internal migrants, people working in another state in India than the one the family lived, uh, about 130 million of people in India are internal migrants. They, they lost their jobs overnight. They weren't even able to return to their native villages and towns because uh, public transport grinded to a halt. So in, in that case, many local civil society organizations, including our partners, had to turn to emergency relief to at least provide food packages and personal protective equipment for, for these people. Now, this big crisis fortunately had a little bit of a positive outcome. At least many state authorities in India are recognizing the, the challenge and the problems. And there are forms of cooperation growing uh, to make sure that existing measures for social assistance could and should reach better the, the people in need. And they are actually working together, again, with civil society organizations to, to get people registered in the civil registries, because that proved to be a very big challenge to, to reach the people. An earlier research of our partners also indicated that many people were not aware of their rights. They were not aware of the, the existence of these measures. So there, too, civil society organizations play a big role to raise awareness and to lead people towards the district legal services. Um, so this kind of initiatives were taken by members of the network to help close the gaps in coverage, to get what they were entitled to get in support. And we saw this all over the network, all over the world, actually. Richard, Kenya, like so many other countries, had to find ways to reach this missing middle and indeed support many people uh, through COVID-19. What kinds of social protection measures did Kenya introduce? And what I'd really be interested to hear about also is how is Kenya thinking about how to cover informal workers now in the future following this COVID experience? 
Now, according to the economic survey of 2020 by the Kenyan National Bureau of Statistics, about 83.8% of Kenya's workforce derive their income from work in the informal economy. Kenya, like all other countries, had never prepared itself for a pandemic like COVID-19. And, 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 and then it, it was very hard, especially for NSSF. NSSF, much as the workers have been saving with NSSF, the scheme is designed in such a way that it's long-term, that workers access their benefits when they retire upon attainment of age 60. But you see, here was a case where workers were losing jobs and they had nowhere to go to. Was those in the informal, you're not in Kenya, out of the almost 15 million workers in the informal, um, only about 500,000 of them actually participate in a contributory scheme. Now, there was even a decline in contributions to both NSSF and NHIF because as these persons lost their jobs, then there was, they had no earnings that they could make the contributions. Now, the question that what is the way forward? Now, to ensure effectiveness of social protection programs in future, COVID-19 really provided an opportunity and an awakening call to think about the informal. In Kenya, for instance, through NSSF, the government has worked out an arrangement really to enable the informal contribute to NSSF. We call it ABAHABA, meaning you contribute as much as you can using the mobile USSD. Now, again, to make it more attractive, rather than making the informal wait until maybe the retirement age, for the informal, we are telling them, contribute consistently for five years, you can withdraw 50% of your contributions plus the interest earned. We believe that through this very, very simple, a flexible approach, we can bring on board very many workers in the informal. And at this morning, actually, we have even been discussing, the government is looking at introducing more benefits through support from the ILO. Currently, the government is working through NHIF to introduce a maternity income benefit. And ILO is supporting in a feasibility study with the intent of introducing unemployment benefit through the National Social Security Fund. Now, the government needs to get more active roles, and this is what we are doing, so that we are also trying to create the social registry, uh, what we are calling enhanced single registry, so that in the event of such a happening again, we will be able to address it and address the right people. Valerie, as Kun says, uh, informal workers have long been difficult to reach through contributory social insurance. What does work when it comes to extending insurance coverage for this kind of group? Um, very difficult question. Um, I think if we knew what, what works really, uh, <laughs> we, were not, we would not be in the situation we are today. So I guess the answer is a, is a combination of things. What we have developed at the ILO is a, a resource package to support the extension of social security to the informal economy. And they have an interesting approach, which is to look at the barriers of access and to try to understand them 
And one barrier is that workers and enterprises in the informal economy are not covered by social security law. So it's clear that uh, we need to adjust, uh, adapt the social security law or to ensure that it covers uh, workers and employers in the informal economy. Just to give you a concrete example that comes from our flagship program, so it's a recent uh, achievement. In Pakistan, the ILO has supported the Punjab uh, Employee Social Security Institution in the design and implementation of the Domestic Workers Act, because domestic workers were really uh, in the informal economy, and through this act, they were able to to have access in 2019 to to social insurance uh, coverage. Another barrier of access is that the schemes, even when they exist and when they are open to workers and enterprises in the informal economy, they may not respond to the, the needs of the workers and enterprises. I mean, we have many, many examples, but one of them is in Mexico, again, uh, an achievement through the flagship. The ILO is really supporting the government to extend social protection to women workers through really uh, tailored policy solutions with some impact already for domestic workers and agriculture workers. Then there is also the question of the administrative barriers. So sometimes the administrative procedures to register, to pay contributions, etc., are really not uh, adapted uh, to workers in the informal economy. And informal economy is not one block, it's very diverse. So we really need to ensure that the administration actually is adapted to their constraints. I think financing as well is key. We know that if we really want to achieve universal coverage, universal social protection, uh, countries need to increase their investments in social protection. And when we are talking about social insurance uh, for the workers in the informal economy, of course, there is the question of whether they have the capacity to contribute fully to have a proper, adequate uh, protection. I mean, all the countries that have achieved results in terms of the extension of social protection to the informal economy, they have actually subsidized the contributions. So this is uh, clearly also an avenue. So you see there is not one answer. It's a combination of answers. And it's important, of course, to test uh, all these ingredients for a good result. COVID-19 has perhaps given new impetus to this need for comprehensive social protection, but of course, financing is key. Valerie, what kinds of financial commitments are required to achieve social protection flaws? And what are some of the financing mechanisms being considered? So what we did prior to COVID, and we did it again during COVID, we did a study on financing gaps in social protection uh, to try to assess how much do countries need to invest in addition to their current investment to achieve at least the social protection floor. And uh, if you look at the the sample was 134 countries, it's a a financing gap of 1.2 trillion US dollar per year. If you compare that to GDP, it's 3.8% of the GDPs of these countries. So it's not, on average, it's not a lot. Yeah. And so what we have always said that most countries can overcome this gap by increasing the domestic resources. And there's a lot of domestic resources uh, mobilization options that exist, even in low-income countries. However, if you compare this financing gap to the GDPs in low-income countries, actually the financing gap represents nearly 16% of their GDP. So here we also say that if we want these countries to achieve universal coverage, universal social protection by 2030, it will be difficult without international solidarity. 
And actually, there is a lot of a huge call for international solidarity. And this is also a legacy of this COVID-19 crisis. Um, and so international solidarity can take the form of technical assistance, but this is not enough. We also need more financial assistance to complement and support the efforts of countries in building their social protection systems and increasing the domestic resource mobilization effort. So how to increase this financial assistance? Here, clearly, there is ODA, more ODA. This is one option. There's also a lot of people who are talking about the reallocation of the special drawing rights of the IMF from developed countries to developing countries. And also what has been discussed extensively is to develop a global fund for social protection. And here, I think we are in a, in a situation now where there's tons of options on the table. The ILO has the green light by the International Labour Conference and the governing body to work on this question of international solidarity, including financial assistance. So you see, we are at a very important moment. And I hope we can yeah, discuss later in a few months time to see how we have managed this important moment. Richard, Kenya has worked with international donors to finance early stage social protection programs in the past. How has Kenya leveraged donor funding and how has domestic financing taken over and increased over time? Now, uh, since 2004, Kenya started as first social assistance program, that is the orphans and vulnerable children, with the support from UNICEF. And like I said earlier, this program just started with 500 households. As we speak today, the program has over 353,000. Now, uh, the, the government of Kenya took up the program towards the end of 2007, 2008, and the program is fully funded by the government of Kenya. Again, we have got the Anger and Safeness Program that uh, the government, together with the DFID worked together and uh, towards 2018, the government fully took up the program. You will note that all the social assistance programs other than those on pilot, like the universal child benefit, which we are now currently piloting, they are all funded by the government of Kenya. So political will is very, very critical and is what has made Kenya make uh, the strides that it has done. Thank you so much, Richard, Valerie and Kun for your time today. Before we go, we'll end with some quick wins. Each month, we ask our guests to give a quick roundup of news, achievements or research that has sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. This week, we have two guests, Yannick Markov and Karina Levina. Yannick and Karina are finishing up stints as ambassadors for socialprotection.org, which is an online volunteering program that gathers participants from all over the world to raise awareness about social protection. Welcome, Karina and Yannick. Hi, Joe. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks a lot for having me, Joe. Yannick, can I start with you? What have you brought to share with us today? So, as a result of the last big global crisis, which was the global financial crisis, banks are now required to undergo so-called stress tests to test their resilience to sudden shocks. 
And I've really had some sort of eureka moment last week when I realized that we should totally do the same with social protection systems after the COVID-19 crisis now. So what I've been reading with real interest is a new social protection system stress test uh, toolkit that was developed by researchers at the World Bank in partnership with the Center for Disaster Protection. Essentially, the stress test appraises social protection systems' ability to adapt to shocks and at the end of the day, do what they're designed to do. Make sure that people have a safety net to fall back to when the next big shock hits. It will be so interesting to see what these systems look like now in the aftermath of COVID when presumably they've already been under a lot of stress. They've already had to expand and respond in so many different ways. Karina, over to you. What have you brought for us today? Well, as I'm a big fan of policy coherence and coordinated interventions, I would like to talk about the spark in the discussions around integrating social protection with other policies and programs or services that COVID-19 pandemic has brought. One of the quite recent papers I found absolutely fascinating in this respect is the ILO brief on delivering income and employment support in times of COVID, integrating cash transfers with active labor market policies. This paper also makes practitioners think and most importantly, understand that integration between social protection and other even quite closely connected policies, programs and services, for example, such as employment support, is not automatic and have to be specifically pursued. And this has to be kept in mind when designing or redesigning social protection programs or response. Thanks, Karina. One of the points this paper makes is that active labour market programs don't work in isolation and that income support should remain part of the picture to support basic needs, prevent people from falling into poverty, but also because you need income in order to participate in the kinds of job-seeking training, public works programs, micro-enterprise programs that we're talking about here. Yannick, turning from the future to the past, you've also been reading about the long-term effects of conditional cash transfers. Right. So this one is a quick win that's actually been 20 years in the making. The other week, I, I read two articles. Uh, one was by Zhang and Imai and one by Arufo and Makur. Um, and both evaluate Progresa, which is, of course, Mexico's famous conditional cash transfer. And they evaluate that cash transfer 20 years after it started operating. Progresa is probably the most evaluated social protection program ever created. So you would be forgiven to think that we know by now everything about its effects. But amazingly, it seems like the program is still having positive effects even two decades after. And these two papers essentially found that kids who were transitioning from primary to secondary school back when their households were eligible for Progresa 20 years ago, they still have more favorable labor market outcomes today than their comparable peers from non-eligible households. Yeah, both found that progressive beneficiaries are more likely to be working and earning more in informal and formal labour markets. So, you know, very encouraging to know that these early investments in nutrition and school and so on through cash transfers really can have good outcomes for productivity and the economy and in the long run, as you say, which I think is something we're constantly trying to argue in this field. Karina, to finish us off today, did you have anything else you wanted to add? And of course, I'll happily mention the socialprotection.org ambassadors program that has enabled me to try to open up this beautiful world of social protection to the Russian-speaking audience. I think for me, the most fascinating thing was to 
tell the experiences of social protection beneficiaries from the human perspective stories to show the impact of social protection programs they benefited from on their lives and how they changed them, how they empowered them, and what opportunities social protection provided to those living in the region of Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Fantastic. Thank you, Yannick and Karina, for joining me today. My pleasure to have been here. Thanks a lot for having us, Joe. Thank you, Joe. It was my total pleasure. If you're interested in checking out some of those Humans of Social Protection stories, we will provide links to them in the show notes. And if you're interested in becoming an ambassador for social protection, which is a program operated through UN Volunteers, follow socialprotection.org on social media and look for announcements about the next intake round, and that will be in March next year. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and we are always so grateful when you leave a review. Back next month. See you then.